0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 213, The Stories We Tell Ourselves. We're joined this week by Buddhist scholar and chaplain, Reverend Danny Fisher, to explore some of the common narratives and stories found in the Buddhist tradition. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today by a special guest. We've had him on the show before, Reverend Danny Fisher. Hey, Danny. How's it going, buddy? Good. How are you, Vince? I'm doing well. Getting ready to move to LA, where where you're located. Actually, we're going to be a little bit toward the beach, but I understand we're going to get to hang out some more. So I'm excited about that. I'm thrilled
1: about it. It's always a pleasure to see you and Emily.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you live in Los Angeles. Um, you started working there a few years ago at the University of the West, and um, you helped start and are now the main professor at the Buddhist Chaplaincy Program and. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention is that you're pretty much a Buddhist boss besides that. You you blog for Shambhala Sun, for Elephant Journal. You've contributed to a lot of really prestigious magazines and, and also academic journals. I see on your bio that you've contributed to Religion News Service, the New York Times, for the BBC, and also my favorite is e-entertainment television. (laughs) Tell me, how did a Buddhist academic practitioner get invited onto e-entertainment television?
1: Yeah, I tell you, when I majored in Buddhist studies as an undergrad, went on to get my Master of Divinity and ultimately my doctorate in Buddhist studies, it was all with the goal ending up on the entertainment television. <laughs> that that was uh, my colleague, Amy Demian, who's the director of our Department of Psychology here at U.S., and she's also a boss. You can find out more about her at uh, com. Nice. She had a connection there, and when the Tiger Woods scandal broke, they were looking to have someone to speak about, basically just sort of Buddhism generally, and as it related to his his life story and then also the scandal and so I went in with Amy and it was for um, True Hollywood Story nice so we both appear on that episode about uh, Tiger Woods for each of us I think just a handful of seconds yeah that's fantastic uh, they, were, they were very nice and I thought had extraordinarily well researched questions I, I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I went in and they couldn't have been more of a pleasure so
0: so at a young age your career's pretty much already peaked with that appearance huh <laughs> It's all downhill from here, exactly. (laughs) And then uh, here you find yourself on Buddhist Geeks. Good segue (laughs) yet again. And, um, you know, something, because we're good friends outside of the Buddhist Geeks program, and we have lots of fun chats. One thing I thought it'd be fun to discuss with you and that we've been chatting a lot about is this whole topic of what we might call Buddhist narratives, or Buddhist stories. And these are narratives or stories that we find not just in Buddhist culture, but also in the wider culture about Buddhism. So in these narratives, they have a huge influence on how people perceive the tradition, whether these people are inside the tradition or outside of it. And if we're practitioners especially, it definitely hearing stories about the point of practice or about past Zen masters or about just Buddhism in general, it really impacts, whether we know it or not, how we view our practice and the purpose of it. Um, And so one thing I wanted to ask is if you could just share, because I know this is something that you've explored a lot in your academic process and also as a practitioner, which kinds of common narratives that you often hear in Buddhist culture and then in wider culture?
1: One narrative that's on my mind, that has been on my mind kind of a lot, is the whole kind of narrative of Buddhism in America. And I suspect that, you know, many of the people who, not all, but many of the people who listen to to Buddhist Geeks and uh, follow your website probably take a look at other Buddhist blogs and things happening with Buddhism and the internet. And it feels like there's a lot of conversation about that um, and how well particular communities, groups, individuals, cultures are represented. And... I mean, I think sometimes a mistake that you hear coming out of perhaps this Anglo-middle-class community is when you talk about the history of Buddhism in America, the narrative arc of Buddhism in America, you sort of say, where does it start? And you say, well, there were these guys, the beat poets, and they got really interested in Zen and you know all this other stuff. And again, the problem with that is it ignores that Buddhism has much deeper roots in America you know with East Asian settlers in particularly the western United States and people who came over here to do things like work on the railroad and then ended up contributing to the growth and development of temples and centers all over the west that were there for people like the Beats to drink deeply. of. Again, that's a problem if that kind of thing gets perpetuated, this idea that the narrative of Buddhism in America starts with the Beats. I mean that, that obviously points to the problem of how we're privileging maybe the experience of you know one group one part of the picture you know not the whole. And by the way, could I stop for a minute and just add one thing to yes. what I had said before? This would so this is just a little chunk. Um, yeah, yeah, please. There.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and obviously we don't have time to get into the to the rich history of Buddhism coming to America, but I would mention um, how the swans came to the lake is in a fantastic book on the history of Buddhism and how it came to America. And then there's also um, Richard Seeger's book, Buddhism in America. It's another kick-ass book with regards to <laughs> Buddhism coming over to the, into the States. And it can be really rich, right, as a practitioner to kind of know the historical roots of this stuff.
1: Absolutely. And I, I would add one other book to that list. There's a, a wonderful book by a good friend of mine, Charles Prebish, called Luminous Passage. I'm going to forget the subtitle, but it it has to do with the practice and study of Buddhism in America. And I sort of feel like it's an essential read for basically anybody who's kind of interested in both the worlds of practice and, and study Buddhism in America.
0: So that's one big narrative. And then, you know, another that we've talked about a lot, because you find it not only now, but also throughout the history of Buddhism. And interestingly, throughout the history of religious traditions on the whole, is something that, and this pronunciation is kind of hard, it's hagiography, So, tell us a little bit, because, you know, as an academic, this is something that you're familiar with terms like hagiography and normative and all sorts of weird terms that most Buddhist practitioners do not hear. Um, Could you say a little bit about what a Buddhist hagiography is?
1: So, hagiographies are interesting because essentially what they are are idealized stories. You know, they're, they're not not the truth, but they're a certain kind of truth that has a priority namely making the individuals ideas community bringing out the best of these things. And it's an interesting topic when you're looking at Buddhism because often storytelling biographies these things have a kind of as they do in most religions but perhaps in a in a really interesting kind of acute way in Buddhism this purpose of kind of contributing to the person's practice you know they exist to inspire to motivate there's a great quote from the ninth uh, Kinshin Trangu Rinpoche, and I, I wrote it down here so I can read it for you, where he says Buddhist hagiographies, life stories, speak about what caused someone to turn away from samsara, at which point in their life they decided to do so, how they were able to find the presser's teachings, who taught them the practices they did, and what they achieved from practicing diligently. So the priority then of hagiography is somewhat different than history. Journalism, something like that, where you're trying to be objective and just report facts and information. Hagiographies have this purpose of trying to get into the heart of the reader or the hearer. So they have a very different character from what you read in a history book or in the newspaper.
0: Yeah, and it sounds almost like describing the Buddhist hero's journey in some way. You know, Joseph Campbell's famous phrase, it's interesting.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think the Buddha's life story might be, you know, an interesting example. Of that because, you know, obviously it's recounting the great story of this individual, but at the same time it's pointing to things that I think the practitioner is meant to to notice and it's supposed to kind of nurture them in their, their journey as well as conveying a great story of this spiritual ancestor.
0: Buddhist hagiographies have been kind of important for me in my practice journey as well sometimes because I'd I'd read different biographies from people like Obviously, one famous one is Milarepa's story. In my own tradition, I've read things like Ajahn Moon's autobiography. Actually, it was an autobiography. It was written by one of his students. And those things were incredibly empowering to me because a big part of the stories are often these realizations or breakthroughs or awakenings that these teachers are speaking about very frankly. And that part for me as a practitioner always spoke very deeply to me because I felt that, oh, if these people could do it, that means that I also have a shot at waking up. And like you mentioned, the Buddhist traditional story is all about that. So it sounds like from Changi Rinpoche's perspective, and and the thing that you're highlighting here is that these stories can be incredibly helpful tools or pointers for practitioners or sources of inspiration, maybe.
1: Yeah, and I think perhaps frustrating in a way, if you're trying to create an objective history because there's a tendency to really celebrate and really demonstrate a lot of appreciation and reverence, you know, whether it's Milarepa or the Buddhist disciples or whomever else, the saints and citizens, so on. So that can create kind of a blurry picture sometimes for people who are not inside baseball, as it were, you know, or non-Buddhists looking in on the
0: tradition. Cool. And, you know, it's interesting because um, there's a recent article that came out, a kind of academic article by someone that we've had on the show before on Buddhist Geeks named Stuart Lacks. And it's entitled Modern Day Zen Hagiography. In it, he goes into incredible detail on two Zen masters that were modern day Zen masters. And he talks specifically about the way that their biographies were factually inaccurate. He sort of points out the kind of inaccuracies therein and then makes some conclusions about how this type of Hagiography, even for inside practitioners, people that are part of the tradition, can actually contribute to scandalous and unethical behavior from the Zen master. Obviously, you know, in the last few months, and we don't necessarily need to get into the gory details of this, but for everyone listening to the show, you're probably aware of some of the recent scandals that have come to the larger culture's attention, scandals from various Zen masters. And of course, there's a history of scandals in all the Buddhist traditions from teachers and people in positions of power. And it's really interesting given that it's current in our practice communities this tension of scandals and people being hurt in community and also this point about from stuart that the way we conceive of a zen master you know if we don't see that it's not literal that there's some metaphorical truth mixed in with kind of mythical storylines, that this could actually contribute to some really scandalous and unethical behavior, actually. I wondered if you could maybe respond to that and share some of your perspectives on this complex issue.
1: Well, you know, it was interesting when we, when you and I did the, I guess it was like the, the pre-interview kind of conversation yes. last week. Yes. I, you know, I thought you actually said a couple of things that I thought were brilliant. I don't, I don't know why you're having me on the show. You should <laughs> You should just talk about it. Were you sort of, pointed out that the way we understand what enlightenment is, you didn't exactly say it this way, but I think you were kind of pointing in this direction, that that can sometimes paint us into a corner if we have a very, very kind of almost crazily idealized idea of, of enlightenment. It can really be dangerous for both the, the teacher and the student to sort of have this view of that. So I'm not sure to what degree the texts actually contribute to that so much as the reader here's kind of what they want to sometimes, or the listener hears what they want to, and the reader sees what they want to. I lived in uh, in New Haven for a little bit in 2008, I guess it was, and I was on the campus of Yale University one day and heard a lecture from Stephen Teiser, who I believe is at Princeton, and he was talking about artistic renderings of one Buddhist text, and he read us a sort of chunk of the text which was remarkably detailed in terms of depicting I think it was the the Pure Land and and what it looked like and all this and then in the artist renderings you don't often see all of those details you know you kind of see probably whatever inspired the artist and essentially to make his point what Kaiser did then was to show us some pictures that I think it was some kindergarten students that he'd spoken to had done where he'd read them the same thing and basically told them would you please draw what I just said. And they effectively did what the artists had done, which was there were certain pieces of it that they grabbed a hold of and really, really liked and were sort of inspired and, and struck by. So at the end of the day, I mean, again, I guess listeners, readers have a certain emphasis they're going to place on certain things and a, and a certain way of understanding it. I'm not sure this, this helps make the point about enlightenment.
0: Yeah, I think it does. And the other thing or the other side of this that I see is that not only do people seem to Latch on to certain things and to have unrealistic expectations regarding themselves and other people. Certainly, we all do that. It also seems like certain traditions or even certain types of traditions can be particularly bad at perpetuating that in the way that these ideals are carried forth. Stuart Lacks, again, I'll I'll go back to him because he's been such a proponent of deconstructing some of these traditional stories from a sociological perspective. And he kind of points out that, for instance, the idea in Zen that the lineage is teacher to student all the way back to the Buddha is almost certainly something that was created in eighth century China. It wasn't something that was actually the case from a sort of objective sociological perspective. We don't see any evidence for that. It's actually something that for Chinese Buddhist genealogy was incredibly important. And so it was very important for the validity of the tradition and for it to take hold in that culture to kind of create a story. And maybe it wasn't even done in it with a harmful intent, but the fact is there is no one-person lineage all the way back to the Buddha from a sociological perspective. And yet this is something that's deeply embedded, mostly as a literal truth in the Zen tradition. And so it's kind of interesting that the traditions have also... Done a lot to perpetuate certain myths, you could say. What's interesting to me is that the Buddhist tradition doesn't seem incapable of doing this, because all the other religious traditions do the same thing. We see myth used as a uh, and taken literally in all sorts of traditions, and I, I find that really interesting because it it kind of pops the idealistic bubble of Buddhism being this like rational religion in some ways.
1: That really is an interesting thing, kind of keeping projections in check. Although, I mean, that there's also a kind of blurriness there in, in Buddhist history, in early encounters with Westerners and Buddhists. You have a kind of a dual thing happening where you have Westerners projecting certain kinds of things, you know, onto these cultures. And then the cultures, Buddhist cultures, sort of looking back and saying, hmm, they seem to really like this, so we'll give them more of this, and that kind of furthers conversation and things like that. So, you know, there's some interesting stuff, you know, in looking at that history of, of first encounters between European historians and, and philosophers and others, you know, coming to these Buddhist countries and these Buddhist representatives kind of encountering religious others elsewhere in the world. So, I mean, that's an interesting thing, and like you said, it creates this picture of Buddhism that may be seems like it wouldn't have some of these pieces to it but then you know when it does people sometimes get a little surprised and and all that and with regards to these scandals i mean i think there's something going on where we're we're missing a piece we're missing a lot of pieces i suppose in terms of talking about first of all sexuality power dynamics things like that and again it seems like there needs to be some back-and-forth conversation with these communities right now there's a lot going on in the Zen community, but this is something that has affected a lot of Buddhist communities and traditions in North America since they've sort of set up shop. So it's it's not unique to the Zen community. We're just hearing a lot about them right now. It's very sad, but it's also, I think, instructive in terms of what we're doing and not doing very well in terms of framing a lot of this. And it seems to me, We need to have a lot more conversations about ethics. We need to have a lot more conversations about gender dynamics and Buddhism in North America. Also kind of look at issues of tradition and how how some of these things are being rationalized or understood or framed often by people committing some of these abuses of power. So you and I, you know, were talking again in the pre-interview about more modern narratives. And, you know, I think when we had first spoken, we were sort of exploring the possibility of talking about Buddhism and media and some of the work you and I do in terms of I guess trying to record some of what's going on in terms of the development of Buddhism in America, things that are happening in the Buddhist world. And it's interesting to me, I mean one one interesting thing that comes out of the hagiography conversation for me is again in the example of Milarepa, isn't that interesting that you have a figure who it doesn't flinch from the fact that you know, he was involved in, like, sorcery, vengeance, murder, these sorts of things. And still it manages to pull out an inspiring, motivating story, and it doesn't kind of flinch from the details. I mean, again, its priority is not to be reported, and yet it has a kind of courageousness about messier details in this figure's story. I suppose, similarly, you might see that in the life of the Buddha, you know, that you have you have him leaving his wife, Yashodara, and his son, Rahula, and leaving the palace to go do what he's doing. And if you read a text like the Bodhicharita, you know, which is a retelling of his life, it's interesting how Yashodara is painted. I mean, that she kind of gets very hysterical about the Buddha leaving and, and is almost kind of spiteful and angry when he comes back. So, I mean, as a reader, you're almost struck by, well, probably better for him to kind of, extricate himself from something like that, which is, you know, a kind of interesting device in terms of figuring out how to negotiate this really messy part of his,
0: his right, story. Right, right.
1: And then in something more deliberately hagiographical, Pich Nhat Hanh's Old Path White Clouds, which is his biography of the Buddha, which is based on the Agamas, but also his looking at the Canon and I think some of Pich Nhat Hanh's own creative spirit, when I was at Naropa, I took a class with Reggie Ray where we read both the Bodhicharita and Old Half-White Clouds, and it's interesting to look particularly, at showed her, and in fact I ended up writing a paper about this topic, um, uh, how she's presented in the Bodhicharita versus how she's depicted in Thich Han's book, and in Thich Han's book, it's really interesting that it's like an incredibly mature relationship, and she's as much a partner in his Enlightenment She is a partner in that. And, you know, there's this sort of frank conversation about how he knows this sort of deep retreat experience needs to be part of what he's doing and he has to leave. And he sort of paints this really beautiful story about the night the Buddha left, but she's awake. She knows he's leaving, but she lets him go to do that. And then there's sort of constant communication between the two of them, again, based on some of the actual canonical stuff, but given a kind of more interesting humanizing spin in a way on your that looks at her as a, as a dynamic interesting individual with her own path and her own really deep spirituality that stands in in great contrast to say the pretty charita where she seems almost kind of again somebody you might not feel too bad about leaving behind if they're going to expect this much of you and behave you know in some of the ways that she's depicted as as behaving so you know you and I are having this conversation about more modern Narratives and how sometimes there seems to be a kind of skittishness around diving into some of the more controversial aspects of particular teachers or proper kind of wrangling with some of the darker pieces. Yeah, so scandals and things are concerned.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, see a, a big spectrum in terms of how people would present their own lives or maybe how other people write about them. And I was just thinking as you were speaking about some of the darker sides and the more human elements, you know, when I read one of my teacher's books, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, Jack Cornfield. I was really struck by how much he highlighted the human elements of awakening and how it really didn't paint a picture of enlightenment as being this sort of perfected state. And that was in real contrast to a lot of the things I'd read. Because even with Milarepa, they do focus on the darkness. And yet the whole point of the story is that he completely overcomes that. Um, whereas in Jack's book, he kind of points out that there's this fluctuation between neuroses and contraction and then great insight and awakening in that of all the Western teachers he knows, of all the Buddhist teachers he knows, they would readily admit that actually. And yet for people to admit it on a personal level is different for them or their students to write about it. And it's so interesting, this interplay between history and contemporary interpretation of history, like you're saying with Thich Hans almost reinterpretation, or at least his interpretation of the canonical material. And then it's just so fascinating that it's such a complex issue and such a complex situation, these, all these different narratives, and, and many of them being competing narratives.
1: Well, it's interesting with the Thich Nhat Hanh example, I mean, that is quintessential hagiography in terms of the way he does it as a writer. You know, that he's looking at Ashvagosha's Bodhicharita and the sort of rendering of Yashodra there, and I think Thich Nhat Hanh looks at that and says, where's the compassion, you know, in, in the depiction of her? That it's, it's more of a kind of convenient caricaturization of her so that we basically will kind of not get stuck on this idea of the Buddha leaving. And rather than kind of painting a bleaker picture or something of the Buddha, what Thich Nhat Hanh does is says, what I can do is put in the compassion here. I can look at this figure with the eyes of of a practitioner, and how can I render Yashodara in such a way that it will have the reader thinking about their relationship to others and their responsibilities to others? It's basically, I mean, in a sense, he's, he's bringing a very kind of feminist lens to it and saying, somehow this gets a pass, so how can I tell this story in such a way that there's sort of a proper sense of looking at men and women as equals? and that we do right by this character, well, the character, this figure. Yashodra, how can I do that? So, I mean, in a sense, his agenda as a writer is to do this in such a way that the reader grows, the reader gets something meaningful from this. So, I mean, it's a beautiful job in terms of doing that. I mean, I think sometimes, yes, when I first read it, there was a part of me that kind of was surprised and thought, oh, this almost seems like a reinterpretation when you're doing some of this. But thinking about another way, in this uh, thinking in terms of hagiography, it's very appropriate and very brilliantly done in terms of him as a teacher. But I suppose it's no surprise, since it's like, not <laughs> that it would be so well done.
0: So it seems like in this conversation, in this interview about Buddhist hagiography and narrative, there seems to be kind of two main ways we can look at it. One is from the practitioner perspective point of view and then the other seems to be a bit more from like an academic point of view and it seems like this begs the question how do we as practitioners because mostly Buddhist geeks is a group of practitioners how do we approach study and i think this is something you're uniquely qualified to respond to because it's basically your job how can study of these things actually support or influence how we actually practice
1: it's interesting. I mean, I think there's been a lot of anecdotal observation about, you know, the issue of how divided I think the world's practice and study are in Buddhism maybe to a degree that's somewhat different from the way we approach the study and practice of other religions in the kind of the North American system. I have a colleague here at U West in Fenwal Huihai and I had interviewed him for a little video about U West that I put together and he kind of made the observation that it's not unusual if you're doing jewish studies for many of these scholars to also be rabbis and if you're doing christian theology or even you know biblical studies and things like that you know it's not unusual for you to be ordained clergy as well then the point he makes is and yet in the world of buddhism it's kind of like anathema to be a practitioner and there's almost a kind of i mean i won't say across the board but i mean i think people are cautious about it In fact. Chuck Prebysh, a couple of years ago, did a piece about this in Buddha Dharma magazine where he sort of, he didn't identify who it was, but he had mentioned he was in the home of a, of a great scholar of Buddhism, didn't know this person was a practitioner, and I think the person was, if I remember correctly, kind of very proud of their home altar, and that was how Prebish found out. His observation was the person didn't want it to get out because then their scholarship would be questioned or looked at oddly. So unfortunately, I think there's a kind of, strange divide sometimes. And my only concern about the divide is, are these times when we might unintentionally or intentionally maybe marginalize findings from both groups. I think practitioners, obviously, there wouldn't be much to look at, much to study, um, if there weren't Buddhist practitioners. And similarly, I think scholars have a lot to say to us that's really profound and really interesting. And I like to think some of what I'm trying to do is to bridge that a little bit, certainly in the, the chaplaincy program, I think it's important for the students to not only be good caregivers, but effectively good Buddhist theologians as well. And I think part of doing this kind of more theological or normative work is having a really strong foundation in terms of religious studies, Buddhist studies, looking at these phenomena through through an academic lens. And I think it can be a little scary that, in the sense that it can be so constructionist sometimes to look at things through the academic lens, and I think it's off-putting to us occasionally as practitioners, and mm. that's where the the rub is. But again, I think we have this great resource in the Buddhist tradition where we're, we're always asked to go further, keep looking, don't try to get too settled, too rooted, keep digging, keep asking questions. And I've certainly had my moments of being extraordinarily challenged by some of the things I've been taught or I've read and looked at and all that. But I think when I try to keep that in perspective as a practitioner, it's been really helpful. And in fact, in a way, it's been liberating sometimes to, to learn certain things, for example, about the creation of Buddhist texts and how some of them came about makes you feel a little bit comfortable about sort of saying not dismissing things, but sort of saying we can challenge the texts on this or the tradition you know on this, like especially around issues of women and Buddhism. My understanding of those things has been well served by being an academic and looking at them and being able to kind of say with some real academic background, this will not stand, this is not okay, there's nothing inherently great about some of this awful stuff that gets said about women that we have to keep, and in fact we need to throw it out, and here's why we can challenge it and we can look at it and say this is problematic, we don't need this. So, you know, again, it makes you feel comfortable, I think, in bridging the sort of modern with, with the tradition. If you know something about the tradition and how it developed, how things happened, again, I think it can be very, very, very liberating to you as a practitioner.
0: Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference